what I had done is I had built a business where the language of the organization had become the core values. Everywhere you look, people use the core values to hold each other accountable. It was just this thing where it was the oxygen in the air we breathed. Then that business grew from 300 to almost 1,000 employees in the next 18 months. And this is like a legit, like some people will, will give you headcount. It's like, you know, I don't want to talk ill, but there's companies out there that count employees that aren't really employees and stuff right. like that. Or they'll count revenue or it's a pass-through dollar. This right. is all le- legit. Yeah. Real employees, real revenue. We built it. We owned it. This was not like franchise thing or something like that. This is like people who we had to manage every single damn thing they did all day long. Welcome to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. My name is Chris Thompson, your host of the show and the head coach of the Student Works Management Program. This is a show dedicated to young and ambitious entrepreneurs and ultimately the leaders of tomorrow. Each week, we will bring you an inspiring interview or message to help you create the future you know you deserve. Let's get started. Hey, leaders. I got to tell you, Wow. Uh, shout out Jay Wong, uh, who helped create our podcast and one of our amazing alumni. He has networked Darius Mershazade, is a high growth CEO, serial entrepreneur, and culture building mad scientist. He was ranked number nine on Glassdoor's list of top CEOs of small and medium sized companies in the US. Numerous award winnings, number three best place to work by San Francisco Business Times and the prestigious Stevie Award for Great Employer of the Year, recognized in the New York Times and Inc. Magazine for innovation and corporate culture, and all sorts of other magazines. We had an unbelievable conversation that you're going to listen to here about his best-selling book called The Core Value Equation. Um, Anybody who's involved in our organization knows how important core values are to a student works management program and what we're doing here. He has just taken it to the next level um, about really decoding how to really make your core values live for yourself, which he has personal core values, and then also for your business. He also, along the way, shares about his incredible success in the uh, prime lending mortgage business in the United States, uh, the incredible boom the bust, the challenges afterwards, and then later on growing out of uh, the dust, as it were. So an amazing story and core values is a huge part of that. So I know you're going to love this podcast and what we are looking for is amazing entrepreneurs. So if you know of any young, young leaders who are looking to get involved in an incredibly amazing organization, please reach out to us. That's all I ask. Uh, studentworks.com, leaderspodcast.ca slash apply, or you could send me an email at chris at leaderspodcast.ca. Thanks so much. Have an awesome day. Okay. Uh, just welcoming Darius Mershazadeh on our podcast. So excited that you were able to join us. Uh, thank you very much for joining the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. I know Jay, Jay Wong, one of our amazing alumni and, and who helped set up our podcast, saw that you were doing all sorts of interviews. And, and I went, oh, I would totally love to have Darius here. I just love what you're creating in the world. And I know our leaders love when I bring in amazingly successful people like yourself. And so I wanted to sort of go back 
graduate from school, you know, like a lot of our leaders here, early 20s. What career choice did you do? Why were you thinking? Why did you choose that direction? Yeah, I was probably a lot more like your people. I was super, super entrepreneurial. So for me, I was like, how can I make money as fast as possible? Mm -hmm. In fact, I mean, I almost dropped out of college a couple of times. So I said, there's really no reason for me to go to college. I'm not going to get a job. Right. I mean, like I literally had this argument with my mom and she said, well, you need something to fall back on. So I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do it, I'll get done as fast as possible. So I got done with college in just over three years. Okay. Just because I was so gung ho to, I really, really, really was money motivated. I was about as money motivated as you possibly could be. And I still am very money motivated, but when I was young, I was, I had never had money before. So I was, I really wanted it. And so, um, Got out of school. I have a twin brother who has been my business partner in the last 20 plus years. And he he was not a very good student. So he didn't go to school, um, but he was a really good salesperson. And so he had gotten himself and then myself into the mortgage industry when we were in high school. So this wow. is back in 19. Yeah, this is back in 1996, our senior year of high school, uh, for, you know, fourth year of high school. He He got an after school job. He had quit the car wash and got a job telemarketing at a mortgage company. Okay. Which if you can imagine, minimum wage back then was like in the US was $4.25 an hour. So we were getting paid six bucks an hour to telemarket, which is that's that's a pretty big step. Significant. Up yeah. From and and it's like you're sitting in an office as mm-hmm. opposed to cleaning cars. Like yeah. it's a pretty big difference. So he was happy to do that. Um, I was an athlete in high school, so I was in my wrestling season when that happened and I ended up wrestling in college too, but um, he got me a job there. And it was interesting because my brother was not a good athlete in, in high school and he was not a good student. But when he got on the phone, it was like, he was like the valedictorian. I mean, am I, is there, is this family friendly or can I talk like a little cursing? You can totally do that. Yes. I've learned to ask because I started yes. getting after some people like listen to this stuff with their kids. No. My brother just fucking got after it. Like he was, a, he was a fucking animal. Like, and I, like I'll give you an example. There's say there's twenty telemarketers in the room. Yeah, you needed to get one lead a day to keep your job. My brother would get twenty by himself. Wow. Like it was. I mean, like I'm not exaggerating. Like, like they had like a board with like where they put up like a little like the yeah like yeah. five like when you're in jail and you're counting the yes. number of years Got you me. have left. Yes. Like one, two, three, five, four, five, five, yeah. five to cross it out. He get like. Sometimes you get like 20 or 30 in a night. Wow. And like, and like, if you got three, you were awesome. So he was a savant. I mean, he was so good. And so he didn't go. So, so, so when I was in college, I had this twin brother that was like basically a screw up who started making like 10 and 15 grand a month in sales. Wow. And this is, you know, 1997, eight, nine. Like, so my brother's making six figures, like when he was 20 years old. Wow. And here I am in college, like killing myself, like poor and, and my brother's driving up to see me in his brand new like a Susie rodeo yeah <laughs> and so when i got out of school i had a degree in business economics and accounting the choice was go work for like a big five back then it was big five accounting firm and make right. like 40 grand a year or go and start selling loans and i was like this is a no-brainer i'm just going to sell go sell loans so i got in the mortgage industry right out of college because it was the, in my mind it was the fastest way to make six six figures so one of the things is, how does a young person coming right out of school set up a mortgage business? Like, how do you get the licensing and all that stuff? Yeah, you don't. Uh, I mean, like, unless you have someone that's showing you the way. So mm-hmm. we got, but but back then you could get, they, they were basically commission only jobs. Okay. 
So you're selling loans, you're getting paid commission only. And, you know, everyone there was making, you know, pretty, not everyone, but the, the better good ones. Good, good, yeah, good ones were making good money and a lot, your effort could result in your pay. Okay. Uh, like, like any sales job, uh, but it was a phone job. And so, you know, I could spare you the details, but basically I got fired from that job. And then my brother was the best guy there. I moved to San Francisco. Long story short, 9-11 happened. Interest rates in the, in the States went really low. And I ended up getting a side hustle job as, as a telemarketer for a mortgage company. Ended up doing very well. Fast forward to 2003. This is three years after I graduated college at this point. And I'd figured enough out how, how to start my own business at that point, which, you know, basically you're getting a license and yeah. you're setting up, setting up a company. Okay. And so we set up a company. I set up a company. My brother wasn't my business partner at this point. Okay. The name of the company was called Twin Capital Mortgage. Twin because it was supposed We're to be twins. Me and my twi- twin brother. But yeah. he hadn't joined me yet. And the reason he hadn't joined me yet is his 10 grand a month had turned into 30 grand a month at this point. Wow. And I was making about 10 or 15 grand a month. And he said, well, why would I leave this to come join you? You make half what I make. Yes. And, and at the time, this is kind of a funny story. At the time, he had a fiance who I hated. Like, like, I hated her guts. And I said, hey, listen. And they were having troubles. And I said, listen, I have a bet I want to make you. I said, the day I make more money than you do in a month, you got to break up with your fiance. <laughs> and, you gotta, and he was in Southern California. I was in San Francisco. Right. And you got to move up to San Francisco and be my business partner. Right. And so this is, I think I had this conversation with him in July of 2003 when I started the business. And um, by September, I, I, the business made a hundred grand that month. Wow. And yeah, yeah. I, you know, it, 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 in, in that business, you're always paying somebody a piece of the action. And once you're running your own shop, you're not paying anyone a piece of the action. So right. if I bring in a hundred grand, I get, my brother was probably bringing in a hundred grand in his business and he was yes. going to pay 30. Yes. I was bringing in a hundred and I kept a hundred. Exactly. So it didn't take me that long. And by the fourth month, I hit it. A week later, my brother drives up to San Francisco with his bulldog, and uh, <laughs> and he and he left his fiance. <laughs> and we were we were twenty five at the time, and that was the beginning of what turned out to be a pretty weird ride. We were a subprime mortgage lender. Uh, we grew the business from ourselves, and and we were twenty five, and we were right. twenty five. And and if you back up, like this is two thousand three, there was a lot less resources out there for young entrepreneurs back then. It was for sure, like nothing compared to today. Yes. You had YEO and you had to know that there was a YEO. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's right. Like, I didn't know there was a YEO. You yeah. Know, there, was, there was the entrepreneurial community. And, and what's funny is this is in San Francisco. None of, nobody I knew was an entrepreneur. Wow. So if you, if you, like, if you think of it now, everyone, everyone's an entrepreneur everywhere. Mm-hmm. But, it, but back then, like, I was the only guy I knew who was an entrepreneur and I knew a ton of people my age. Mm. So we ended up uh, growing the business. And it grew pretty incredibly fast. It grew from the, the, the revenue growth was 2,556% over the next three years. Wow. And we grew it from about a $300,000 in, um, I think it was 183 or 300,000. I can't remember the number in revenue in, in 2003 to almost 10 million in 2006. Wow. So it was, we were number 40 in the Inc 500 that year. This is before there was an Inc 5,000. And we really, I mean, it was, it was an exceptional ride. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, Chris, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, right. Not. Right. Well, you guys could sell. We could sell. 
and you you just do it by force at that point but scale was a different story like i right. didn't understand scale i didn't understand organizational development and so i uh, around 2005 i mean i was pulling my i was a ceo i was 27 i had no idea what i was doing and i was right. just getting my teeth kicked in and this point the business was five million dollar business i mean mind you we'd grown from literally zero to five million bucks in 18 months right and, and, and the total trial by fire yeah um and the business was not a great business it was fun and we were making a lot of money, but it was not a well-run business by, right. any, by any measure. Right. We were just guessing. And then right. and there was no, there was no adult supervision, you know, now the mortgage industry and that was going nuts and right. everyone, everyone was printing money. There's a really fun movie called the big short. That's all about this. Yes. Highly recommend the movie guys, the leaders yeah. listen, watch the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great movie. It's a really, Michael Lewis wrote the book. It's a great book too, Yeah, but it's, literally like that i live that mm-hmm. but i was like some young buck with like wet behind the ears just just trying like not if when you read it what you find out is that we were growing a subprime mortgage lender now mind you what's funny chris is i actually got out of subprime okay i went into this thing called alt a which was basically became subprime when it all blew up in 2007 everything was subprime if it wasn't right but i specifically got out of subprime because i didn't like what i was seeing and I got an Alte, which actually turned out to be even more toxic. We just didn't okay. know it. It just okay. didn't, you didn't know it then. You didn't know what you didn't know, right? Because um, they were so exotic these loans. And so, anyway, in 2005, I, I was really getting my teeth kicked in because I just didn't know what I was doing. I called myself the firefighter. I was grow- going from one department to the next, putting out a fire. So we had three departments: loan sales, loan processing, loan marketing. Every 30 days, I was in a new department putting out fires, and, and then I'd go up and start over at the first department because it was back on fire. And so wow. <laughs> one Friday night I was reading on Inc. magazine, which was like my Bible at the time. Right. And I saw this ad for this program called Birthing a Giants. Okay. I know it. Which Inc. magazine was a big part of then. And it was Inc. magazine, the MIT Enterprise Forum, and EO mm-hmm. had were, were all they all co-owned it together. Right. And so I ended up applying, but I missed by a week for, for the 2005 class. Right. So I, so I had, I literally held on the application for like nine months, turned it in the, the day it was available the, the following year in 2006. And I got accepted into this program. Right. And there were some amazing companies in our, pro- my class in particular. So Vern Harnish, who's the author of scaling up was still teaching the class then. Yeah. And so he taught our class and I had, if you read scaling up, there's a couple of case studies in the book. One of which is a company called nurse next door which is a Canadian company um, out of Vancouver. Those guys were in my class. There's another company called Apple Tree Answers, another case study in the book. John Ratliff was in my class. I mean, it was like an, it was like an all-star of scaling up clients were all in my class. So I had these like, scaling up super users in my class. Right. And you're just taught the best practices to scale. Yes. And I, I was like a kid in a candy shop. I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God, it's going to solve all my problems. So I go home 2006 and start working on our one page strategic plan, start rolling out top grading, which is by the the smarts, start rolling out core values, which Vern says you got to do. And my business went from like screwed up to like 10 times more screwed up. Uh, It wasn't because of the systems we rolled out. It's because we grew, we grew from 60 to 150 employees in the next 18 months. Okay. And I just couldn't keep up with the growth. And I just, I, I wasn't built for scale. Right. And so I was lucky though, the market solved my problems for me. Mm-hmm. And in 2007, 2006 was the best year we ever had. We had made over, I think, 2 million bucks that year in profit. Right. 
And in 2007, all of a sudden, January 2006 was my most profitable or 2007 was my most profitable month I ever had. By June, I was breaking even. I'd stopped making money. Wow. And by August, the subprime meltdown happened. And we went from 150 to 10 employees in the next 90 days. Just bang. Over. Yeah. I, I joked almost that we, over. when I went to the Inc. 500 conference, I was the 40th fastest shrinking company in the United States <laughs> at this black tie gala. And I was just miserable. And the business was basically a train that had fallen off the tracks and was sliding to a cliff. And right before it fell off the cliff, it stopped. Right. And then it just lived there for the next three years till it died. Right. And so I learned a lot. And so fast forward to June of 2008, I went back to Birthing of Giants and we graduated that year. This is the last year. And it was pretty somber for me. I, you know, it's tough to be around a bunch of high growth entrepreneurs. Yes. By the way, June of 08, the rest of the world wasn't in a recession yet. So everyone else, I remember that my Canadian buddies were all stoked because the loonie was like going to beat the dollar. Right. Oh, sorry. Yeah. You guys are like, yes. yeah, it was the first time. I swear to God, I, I, people were like having parties over it. The first time in 30 years. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. the US economy was starting to soften and you guys were having a boom up there. And so we had this really interesting thing that happened where John DeHart and um, Ken Sim, who were the CEOs of Nurse Next Door, they did this exercise with us as a class. It was after we graduated. And on a Saturday night, they said, please, you know, everyone come into this room. We all came into the room together. It was a peer-to-peer -peer learning workshop. And they said, please stand up if your company has core values. So everyone in the whole room stands up because we were taught that day one. In fact, we had created them ourselves. Right. They said, please stay standing if you can say the core values off the top of your head. Half the room sat down. Wow. I was in the first, that half. Right. They said, and I couldn't believe it. It was like a gut punch. Right. Then they said, please stay standing if your employees can say your core values and can say them on the top of their head. Half the remaining half sat down. And then finally, they finished every day, everybody off. They said, please stay standing if your customers know your core values. The whole room sat down. And I remember I was sitting there and I was just like, wow. Like, first of all, I was pissed at myself. But then secondly, I was like, everyone sat down. Right. And I just realized something was off. Like, well, if this is such an important thing in your business, how is it possible that three quarters of the room sat down when they were asked if they and their employees knew their core values and the entire room sat down with the exception of John and Ken, they stayed standing, but the entire room, these are people that were some of the like, most respected people I knew in entrepreneurial world. None of us really had like a core value based organization. We may have had core values in our business, but they weren't, they weren't being utilized to create a lot of value necessarily. Right. And so it was the moment that set me down this, this crazy path of building core value driven organizations and getting really obnoxiously obsessed about core values. And, and yeah, here I am 12 years later and I just wrote my book called the core value equation, which is all about how do you build a core value driven organization where the language of the organization is the core values. And, and there's a lot of cool things that happen along the way that we could get into. What a fantastic story for our leaders. I wanted people to, to just get Vern Harnish scaling up, uh, gazelles.com. There's a great weekly newsletter. Uh, read all of his stuff. He is the leader in the world on uh, growth and growth, fast growing companies. You know, he, he, he was the founder of EO, the founder of Birthing of Giants. Uh, so, yeah, a remarkable guy. So, you know, in terms of like, I know there's a lot of interest or, or was a lot of interest around the mortgage crisis. Like, there was a real, breach of ethics, right? And, 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 and some of it was an unknown, like, so there's, in my mind, there's a breach of ethics. And then there was a, people really didn't know what was going on, right? Like, you know, you, if you, if you watch the movie, these guys 
knew what was going on and they figured out what was going on and placed bets. And it took months and months and months before it actually occurred. You know, someone sitting in the middle of the industry, did you have an idea what was happening? None. Yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, like I, look, I was really in today in the States, they let kids stay on their parents' insurance till they're 26. Mm-hmm. I had like 50 employees when I was 26. So, I mean, like, like, listen, <laughs> just to put it, just to put things into context, like, yeah, the most 26 year olds barely know how to tie their shoes. Right. Um, let alone how a complicated mortgage backed security is structured with exotic mortgages sitting on top of them. Right. So no, I no clue. I'm sure there was smart people out there that did, but I will tell you that the, the people on the, on the far end of the spectrum selling the loans, we knew a little bit more than the, than the consumer who was buying it, which was not much. Right. We just knew that we would lower their interest rate and lower their payments. We didn't know that there was these essentially the way they were structured was, was it not, was that the detriment of, of the, of the person who had the mortgage? And so, no, I didn't, I, I didn't know. I, I mean, I remember the day I, fi- I found out, I remember the day I found out that then they had these loans called negative amortized loans, which basically you paid less than your full interest payment. Yeah. And then after the loan balance went up by a certain percentage, they would re-amortize into a fully amortized payment. So your payment would go from like 700 bucks a month to 7,000 bucks a month. Well, yeah. And they qualified them off of like, whatever the income the borrower told you they made. Right. So the borrowers were just telling you whatever they needed to tell you to qualify. Right. Which was, I mean, there was a lot of like women who worked in nail salons making 20 grand a month. Right. Yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah, a lot of donut store owners making 50 grand a month. So it was a house of cards and, and you, you had to like kind of participate to be competitive. Right. Or you had to just go out of business because like, and that's what people like you had to basically like, shut down your shop because this was in the United States, it was 60% of the market. So if you can imagine a marketplace where a ton of toxic loans were being made, it wasn't a question of if these people were going to get toxic loans. It was a question of who they were going to get them from. Right. Because it's not like these borrowers were like, you know, should I go for the 30 year fixed at 5% or should I go for the 1% where I get a hundred grand cash out and it has some crazy thing that happens that I don't know about. And the guy that's selling it to me get, makes three or four points. Right. By the way, the the homeowner wasn't like, which one should I do, sir? The homeowner was like, here's four other people who are quoted, quoting me on a 1% loan. Can you beat their fees? Wow. So yeah, this was like, people will make it out like the lenders were the bad guys. And I'm like, no, 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 no. There was greed all the way around. Right, right. And the greediest of them all were the, were the banks that got bailed out who were funding these loans, who were doing all the derivatives trading, who were doing all the crazy stuff. Because- they knew what they were building. They were building some very sophisticated, you know, financial instruments that they were making a lot of money on on the back end. And you know, you had large insurance con- companies and sovereign debt funds and stuff holding the bag when it was all said and done. I mean, you had the country of Iceland that went like bankrupt. Yes. Right? So, so I mean, stuff like that, right? So I, I would tell you that I remember thinking to myself once I found out what we were doing. I was like, I can't believe that that this. It was one of those moments where I was like, kind of sick to my stomach, where I was couldn't believe that I didn't know, you know, right. I consider myself a pretty smart guy. And like, if I didn't know, I mean, I can't imagine what other people didn't know. So it was a turning point for me. And I, I just said, I'll never ever do a loan for money again. You know, like, like not for, not to not make profit, but, but right. I won't like greed and get in the way of common sense. Right. You know, right. cause I, I didn't know. I mean, honestly, I, I didn't realize that those were the loans we were doing. Right. And so it was a really tough pill to swallow because I, I consider myself a very high integrity person. Mm-hmm. And just to not know that seemed kind of irresponsible and it was what it was. And I paid the price for it pretty hard. I got, I had a lot of lawsuits I had to fight. Right. 
uh, for a long time. Yeah. And my understanding, there were a lot of people who really didn't know, really didn't understand. Like I, I, you know, I remember, you know, the TD bank or one of my, one of my friends who I used to ski with them. He was an executive VP of the TD bank and, you know, in, in, investors would come to them and say, well, Hey, analysts, well, why aren't you investing in this stuff? Like you guys should be investing in this stuff. We're going to downgrade your stock. Like this was 2007. Like, you know, we're going to downgrade your stock if you guys don't invest in it. So there were a lot of people, really sophisticated people who didn't know what was really underneath of it. So. Yeah, they were complicated. They were very complicated loans and it was heavy paperwork. And it was just one of those things where it's like, you tell, I mean, I, I show you these notes and it, unless you were really, 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 really smart, like it's not something that was common sense. It was like, oh, this is going to, this is not, this might end up badly for this consumer, right? I, I know me. Well, the minute I, I figured it out when it was explained to me, I was like, no, that's not how these things work. Right. And, and I remember at that point it was, we were already out of them. Right. But yeah, it was ignorance. And and there were, the whole industry was ignorant. The borrowers were ignorant. The people that were not ignorant were the ones giving the loans and, and they made a lot of money and they blew up the world economy. And, and you know, we were, we were, at, you know, there's responsibility all the way around, but for sure. No, nope. but uh, yeah, it was a big, it was a really big learning lesson. And I, and I, I said to myself, I'll never put myself in the position again, where I have a business that doesn't do good for the world. And it was, it, I was really young when that happened. I was in my late twenties. And, and so I, I rewrote my core values after that morning at Birthing of Giants. And this was a year after the, the you know, my, my, my business imploded essentially. Right. Yes. So I, I paid the price, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I gave back all my winnings. Right. And it hurt. And, but it was, you know, they weren't gotten the right way, I guess, you know? So I redid our core values and I did, and I really said, well, what's important to us? And I said, you know, we're a company that works hard. We're the company that we believe in karma, right? We're about breaking the innovative thinking and we're about excellence. And the core values, we had these six core values, 76 words. No wonder I couldn't remember them. And they became four core values, do work, live Zen, break the box while everyone, and live Zen was all around never doing what happened with the subprime meltdown ever again. It was around karma and doing the right thing. My next company that was my biggest success, our number two core value is strength of character. And so so for most businesses, I say like integrity is table stakes. Yes. In the mortgage industry, I doubled down on it. I said, I'm not going to give everyone, anyone an opportunity to do something sideways in my business. I learned from having a subprime mortgage lender, building a subprime mortgage lending business and really seeing that, you know, the, the outcome of that, that I would never be, I would never allow for, as long as I was a leader, right. I would never allow for anything like that to ever happen again. Right. You know, uh, so that's the money source, right. And, and, uh, is, is that correct? That's the most recent business. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So what ended up happening was I spent five years in entrepreneurial purgatory. I got mm-hmm. my ass, I cut checks to go to work from 2007 to 2012. I right. Mean, like, literally I made $0. Right. So whatever great time I had from 03 to 06, I paid the price. I doubled that up in five, for five years. I got killed. Right. right. So I, I paid, I paid my dues for, for again, for, uh, being whatever it was that we were before. And it sucked and it hurt really bad. And I even considered leaving the industry, but I kind of, you know, I pivoted and pivoted and pivoted and I kind of figured my way around. In 2012, I was doing a joint venture with this company um, called Pacific Union Financial. And we grew that significantly. We grew it to about $40 million of revenue in 18 months right. from, from startup. And then that ended up, it was kind of a weird situation. We got bought out of that. And then I went out and I raised money through hedge funds 
long story short, it was a seller's market. I couldn't buy the company I wanted. So I ended up partnering with the money source that did another joint venture. And that's where the magic happened. I grew the company with my business partners from 30 to 300 employees in 18 months. Right. And the interesting thing about it this time was I had grown from startup to 150 employees in, in three years when Twin Capital had its success. But growing from 30 to 300 at, at the money source, at the end of the, that time, I was something magical happened. I looked back and I said, wow, I had zero growing pains, like zilch, right. like wow. nothing. And I couldn't believe what had happened. And, and like, I don't know if you guys do like employee net promoter scores or anything like that in your business, but we, we did that at ours. Right. I, I, I would measure customer NPS and employee NPS on a regular basis. Customer right. I did mo- monthly and employee I did quarterly. And at the end of 18 months, we had like an 83% ENPS and NPS, which is higher than any other company in the whole United States. Wow. So I had this super engaged workforce that loved their job. And I had grown this business literally from like almost nothing to 300 employees. And I had no growing pains. And I said, what the hell did I just do? Right. And what I had done is I had built a business where the language of the organization had become the core values. Right. Everywhere you look, people use the core values to hold each other accountable. It was just this thing where it was the oxygen in the air we breathed. Then that business grew from 300 to almost 1,000 employees in the next 18 months. And, and this is like a legit, like some people will, will give you headcount and it's like, you know, I don't want to talk ill, but there's companies out there that count employees that aren't really employees and stuff right. like that, or they'll count revenue or it's a pass-through dollar. This right. is all le- legit. Yeah. Real employees, real revenue. We built it. We owned it. They, this was not like, you know, franchise thing or something like that. This is like people who we had to manage every single damn thing they did all day long. Right. Right. You know, and it was, it was all over the United States and there's nothing wrong with those other businesses, but people sometimes throw those numbers out there and they're, they're, they're not like, I know a guy that has, I have buddies that have freight companies and they have like 25 million in revenue at 3% profit margins because it's a pastor. They count the cargo in their revenue. Right. Right. Yeah. Like no. no, that's none of this. This is like a. This is a real. Like I can't. I'm not allowed. I, I exited the business, so I'm not allowed to say our revenue. Mm-hmm. But let's just say, like, I was a ten million dollar company, and I was way more than ten times the size of that business. Right. So this is a big company, and it was amazing. It, it became this play, this playground for me to experiment with my work around core values, and I got to experiment and experiment and experiment like you'd never seen before, and. And I felt like at the end, I had really perfected this. And there's a guy, do you know who Cameron Harold is? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Cameron's a friend of mine. And he and I were talking right when I was like working on the launch of the book. And he, he had taken a look at the book and he said, look, man, you've decoded core values. This is amazing. Right. And that's really what it comes down to is we figured out how do you take this thing that's intangible, make it super tangible and create what I call the language of, the organiz- of, of all organizations and of our lives for that matter. Right. Well, I'm really fascinated because certainly we have core values. We live by the core values. And on the other hand, I am sure speaking to the growth that you've had, we have loads of stuff to learn about core value. So what's the biggest opportunity most firms have around creating and making the core values real in a business? Well, I think before I go there, I'll say what I think the the process has been for most companies like up until I think my book. 
and there's variations on this, but essentially people do a discovery process. If you talk to like, yeah. if you read scaling up, they talk about doing a discovery process. So right. what I say is I'm not, there's nothing new with my book on that. The discovery process is a well-worn path, right? Uh, you can do a mission to Mars exercise. There's a bunch of different ways to kind of figure out what your values are. Right. Where I think the mistake happens beyond that is that they take these, you know, these, th- I call them core value themes. So those right. might be things like integrity, courage, teamwork, family, you know, honesty. Those are values, but I, I, I say they're themes because they're, they're, they're kind of generic. Yes. 10 companies can have those same values. Right. Then they'll take them and they'll do some kind of rollout. You know, they'll, they'll announce them to the team. They'll hang them on the wall. They'll, you know, put them on, maybe put them on the website. Maybe, maybe not, you know, here and there, maybe they talk about them at their quarterly meetings a little bit. Maybe they stuck them on a mug, but the rollout's usually pretty weak and the implementation is even weaker. Right. And, and then they say they're a core value driven organization. I just described most companies. Right. Yes. And, you know, if I said, hey, forget about your core values, replace the core values with your new product. And let's say you did the exact same thing with a new product. You tell me, Chris, what would be the outcome? It wouldn't work. It wouldn't wouldn't deliver. You wouldn't wouldn't get great results doing anything like that. Absolutely. Right. So we don't do that with our products, but we do it with our values. Now, let me take two steps back and, and I say, but Chris, your core values are the most valuable asset you have in your organization, yet that everyone doesn't. Now, does what I just described. The reason they do that is because there's no real, it's intangible. There's no real like known way to do it. And, and even myself, like there was no, no way that I, I didn't have like some roadmap that was given to me. Right. Uh, there was 10 ways to do it. I did the nine that were wrong. And there was one <laughs> option left. <laughs> like a true entrepreneur, I kept doing it till I got it right. You know, and now multiply that times a hundred. There was a hundred different ways times 10. I did 900 of them wrong until, right. you know, I ended up at the one right spot or 90 of them wrong until I ended up at the one right spot 10 different times. Right. And so I just kept doing it wrong until I got it right. And then I started helping forum mates with their values. But what I figured out was this. I believe there's a five-step process and I outline it pretty, pretty extensively in the book. And the books are very, it's a playbook. It's very simple. Uh, there's a woman, Gina Mullicone Long. I don't know if you know her out of Whistler. She's a brilliant lady. And she said, this is a really digestible playbook, step-by-step right. playbook on how do you do this. And it's re- the reason it's like that is real simple. If you don't make it simple, people won't do it. Right. Yes. <laughs> if I didn't make it simple, my people wouldn't do it. So like a true entrepreneur, I'm not a consultant. I don't, you know, like I'm not, like, no offense to consultants, but most consultants no. didn't build businesses from the ground up. They usually get brought in and fix problems that are existing with their, you know, ideological frameworks. Right. Mine was like, I was a CEO just trying to figure it out and didn't have a budget like to where I could go hire people to fix it for me. So I had to fix it myself. Mm-hmm. And so I figured out there's five steps to the framework. Number one is the discovery process. Like I said, that's a well-worn path. Hey leaders, I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. Since we started this podcast, every person you've heard from has been one of the incredible alumni of the Student Works Management Program. In large part, that's how I got to meet these amazing people and participate in their development. Starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down the path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca 
slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. Now back to the episode. Number two, where my book really shines is I created a design process. So think of it like a product. If you have a product you're designing for use, you're going to be very thoughtful about designing it for high utility value. If I want the values to be sticky, if I want them to be viral in the organization, they have to be designed for those things to happen. Right. So if I want people to remember them, they have to be designed for that to happen. You can't Mm -hmm. have 33 words in your values and expect people to remember them. It's too many words. Like there's a thing called Miller's law that the human brain can remember seven items plus or minus two. Like that's a law in psychology for a short-term and long-term memory. So I, I landed there accidentally. And then I ended up doing the research. I was like, Oh shoot, this is Miller's law. Cause I used to say you can't have more than 10 words in your core values. The real number is nine. And so you have to design them to be viral and sticky. So they got to be memorable. They got to be in the tone of the organization and then they have to be something that can be used by the organization. Then the, the, the third step, as I say, you have to have a really thoughtful rollout. When you bring, when, if I want to, if I want people to join my cult, I got to get them into like the cultish mindset. Absolutely. Like no good, no cult just says, "Hey, here, welcome to the cult," and then walks away. The cult gets you steeped in like the beliefs of the mindset, see, of the of the cult. So you gotta, you gotta. You know, I hate to use the word brainwash, but you got to really get people to believe in what it is that you're doing. And there's a trick to that. You want to know what the trick is, Chris? I am excited to hear about the trick. I am listening. The trick is really simple. You got to sure. make it all about them. Yeah. Okay. That's always it. WIFM. What's in it for me? Radio, right? Totally. Yeah. You have to make so the rollouts all about them. I mm-hmm. I spent three hours on them. And then once they're all like warm and fuzzy, then I'd say, well, hey, by the way, this is what I'm all about. And at that point, they're intoxicated by their, themselves. So right. they're, ready, they're ready to listen. But I teach them and I make it all about them. And, I, and it's with sincerity in mind. Of course. Of course. So the rollout, you need to make it about the team. And then, and then you, it's the give take. You got to give to them. And then you can then ask for them to, to give back. Well, I, if that's your core value wedding then what happens afterwards? I say it's a core value marriage. It's not like I have a wedding and I never talk to my spouse again. The relationship starts that day. Right. But you got to make it very user-friendly and easy or else guess what, Chris? It'll fall away. Absolutely. Yeah, you won't do it. The minute it's work, you're like, man, I got too much fucking work to do. This is like, I'm going to go back to business as usual because that's way easier than this core value bullshit. So you got to figure out, and, and I, and there's some very simple little, really simple little things you can do that require very minimal effort. And you get a lot of bang for your buck and the, the book outlines that. And last but not least, the fifth thing is why do any of this at all, unless you can measure results. Right. So I created a measurement system to basically optimize the values. Very simple. We use ENPS, NPS, and we use a system that Gallup has created called Q12. And really what we're doing is we're measuring engagement in the organization. How, and then we baseline that and we measure it on a regular basis. So I'm trying to figure out, am I getting results? Am I getting higher engaged team out of this? And then I'll take those results and triangulate them against more traditional vanity metrics and KPIs. And we started seeing some pretty amazing stuff that if my engagement scores were up 10%, Generally speaking, my productivity was up 10%. If it was down, sense. it was down. So the lever I pull is the core value lever to, to really try to increase engagement. And, um, and from that, we got paid handsomely. And so it's really a five-step process. Like I said, 
discover, design, roll out, implement, and then measure and rinse, wash, repeat. And you just do right. that consistently. And you kind of, you know, every organization is a little bit different, but you get really fun with it. And I mean, I turn my, my business, when you walk in there, you know, and still like this, but before I left, it looked like a professional sports team. Like you walk in there and like people were all about everything, all about the company. Right. And it felt that way. And it was right. because they had a language that they, uh, it was a, there was a consistent immersive language that they all could trust that each other owned. Okay. So, so to make this real for our leaders, you know, what were the, the, the core values of the money source? Uh, the number one core value is people matter, which is caring about people. So caring. Right. The number two is strength of character that I talked about earlier. That's integrity. Okay. Number three is inspiring leadership, which is inspiration. And the the number four is rock solid uh, service, which is uh, service orientation. So in the design process, I break it into three levels. What I just told you was called the header. Okay. So I take the theme of caring and I convert it. I translate it into a header that is in the tone of the organization. By the way, the only thing people need to remember is the header. So in our business, the headers were, again, people matter, inspiring leadership, strength of character, and rock solid service. I don't count prepositions when I'm counting the nine words. Okay. And so, like, you know, people matter, those are two words. Strength of character, those are two more words I don't count of. Uh, Inspiring leadership, two words, and then rock solid service, three words. So those are nine words. And so... Below that, as I call it a descriptive, and we and there's a lot of time spent building the descriptive. That is, well, what does people matter look like in our organization at a high level, not at like, do we serve them snacks at lunch type stuff? Right. But but that's tactical. But but at a strategic level, what does it look like? What does it really look like? And when I do that, what I'm doing is I'm spending a lot of time testing decision making against the values. And there's a whole process we build in the book. Like, how do you build this for? attracting the right talent, holding right. them accountable, kicking people out of the organization that don't live the values. What does it right. look like? Because what ma- what people matters or what caring looks like to Chris may look different than what caring looks like to Darius and his Definitely. organization, right? Definitely. So the reason I build the descriptive is that I found that people would weaponize the core values against the organization. Yes. So once you once they once they take on a life in the organization, they become it, it's a two-way street. If you're not living them or people want to use them as a way to, you know, leverage against the organization, they might, they might say something like, well, Darius, that's not people matter. Yeah. You know, cause I didn't give them a raise cause they, they yes. were, you know, they didn't deserve a raise. Right. That's not people matter. That's not inspiring leadership. Yeah. And I'd say, no, 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 no. It doesn't say person matters. It says people that's plural, my friend. Right. And then I'd read the descriptive. I'd say, let's read the descriptive. You show me where I didn't live the core value. And it, and this is intentional. So I built it because I knew it would be, I knew when it came to life, it would be weaponized against the organization. So right. the descriptive allows for, it's a protection against that. And then, but it's really more so around accountability. I wanted people to be held accountable to a standard in the organization. Right. That's not me saying, hey, why didn't you do this? Right. It's me saying, the core value saying, hey, why didn't you do this? Absolutely. And then they can then you hold it against each other from an accountability standpoint. So what starts to happen is when that happens, two things happen that are really magical. Number one is it creates the ultimate decision-making engine in the organization. When you build the header and the descriptive for, for high utility value and people are using them and it's tested against decision-making, which this happens during the decision-making process or the design process, right. you can then read the core values out loud and you know exactly what you're supposed to do. I kid you not. I had the most hardest decisions I had to make. And every time I had a decision, and typically speaking, by the way, whenever it's a tough decision, it's because it's not clear or 
not just that, it's that you don't want to make it. <laughs> right. Yes, <laughs> so, exactly. So you know what the right answer is. You just don't want to make it. decide it. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. So what I, what I would do is we would bust out the core values. We'd read the header. We'd read the descriptive of all four of our values. And 99 out of 100 times, 99.9 of 100 times, I'd say, this, you want to hear what I would say, Chris? What? I'd yes, say, I do. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> shit. <laughs> I'd say, shit. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and my partners and I look at each other, we're like, shit. <laughs> we knew what we had to do. And so right. uh, the values always told us what to do. I'm telling you, layoffs, selling businesses, firing people. I mean, it sucked. Right. Every time I'd be like, what, what are we going to do with this person? Read the core values. Shit. We know what we have to do. Let's figure it out. Right. So uh, the core values have the power to be the ultimate decision-making tool. And when they start to do, when you do that, you, you can always go back to center. And the team starts to do that because they see that the leaders are doing it. Right. And then when, when that happens, there's a special kind of consistency that happens in the business. And I have a term for that in the book that I call invisible scale. Mm-hmm. Is that people start to gravitate towards the middle. They start to gravitate to where those core values say they're supposed to go. And they do it organically. They right. do it holistically. And when that happens, a lot of the uh, the organizational inertia speeds up. Right. The momentum of change happens faster. People that don't like what they're being held accountable to, they self-select out of the organization. They leave. Yeah. People yeah. that or like they don't it, come. Yeah. They won't show up to begin with. They'll yeah. leave on their own. So that's all waste, by the way. That's that's one conversation that the manager doesn't have to have because someone's being an idiot. Yeah. Right. Those those conversations stop happening. Yes. Those people pissing off clients stops happening. Mm-hmm. When it happens, they get rid of quickly. So mm-hmm. it creates this like alignment towards the middle. Consistency starts to happen and you get invisible scale. It's the reason I went from 30 to 300 employees and had no, no, no growing pains because that happened by itself. Right. And when you have that, that's real value. That's real money in your pocket as an entrepreneur and as a manager. And so the last thing that happens as I say that it creates a magnet for talent. What started happening in my business was as we grew and as we became more successful, people started knowing what we stood for outside of the organization. And I would get, you know, there's a plenty of apathetic leaders out there that you compete against who I would just go steal their talent. I stole right. everyone's best talent. It was, right. it was awesome. I took such great pleasure in stealing people's talent. It was like, I would just have my hit list of the top people in the industry and I literally would hire all of them. Wow. And, and that starts to, and then you got a flywheel that starts happening. Best people show up. They're holding people. They're raising the standard. Yeah. The accountability level goes up to that higher standard. Yeah. More people leave that don't want to be held accountable at standard. And you get a higher and higher and higher, higher performing organization. And that's, I mean, what I'm describing essentially is a championship team. Yes. I mean, that, you, and that's you, what you build. But you, it's done the old fashioned way through language and through accountability. And the values are the centering around that. 100%. I remember, oh gosh, all of a sudden, uh, Alabama football coach, you know, he was saying that the biggest thing, the best football players don't want to have adequate football players, good football players. They just want great football players. They're the ones who hate, uh, the, 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 you know, the people are just getting by. It's, it's like that commitment and level of performance. It just, it just keeps rising and rising and rising in our, in our business, our averages have jumped from 60,000 to $96,000 over the last three years. And I can see we've got some opportunities for growth, uh, around decoding our, or, 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 um, communicating our, our core values more effectively. And, and, and I, and I, and I going, how can you create that? But I, I see what you, you got headers, and then what does that mean? So I'm really excited about this conversation, Darius, and what we could do. 
Yeah, I left out one part, which is at the ground level, what does it look like? And then you start to take that language because now you've created a language. Because mm-hmm. if you do this well, it should be in the tone of the organization. Right. I read your header and your descriptive. Now, your header, you might have integrity, courage, family, and teamwork in there. And another guy across the street might have the same. But the way you express it is different in the tone yes. of the header and the descriptive. Yes. That's the meat on the bone, by the way, mm-hmm. the power of language and words. Yeah. So once you have that, it's a really amazing asset because now I've expressed what you are as an organization. And, and I have examples of this that I'm happy to show you guys of different organizations that all have the same core value of excellence, but the way they express it's totally different. Yes. And that's where you really, that's where I think it makes a big difference. Once you have that and the descriptive is in that same tone as what the header is. So if you go back to uh, Twin Capital, you had do work, live zen, break the box, wow, everyone. Do work was work hard. You know, mm-hmm. do work just sounded cool. We were mm-hmm. kind of a cool, hip, you know, forward thinking organization. Live zen, yeah, that's kind of like, you know, zen yeah. is considered a more progressive word. Break the box, you know, a little more average. Innovation. Yeah, innovation, wow, everyone. You could tell there's a tone to those words. They have a certain feel to them, yeah. right? And so that, that's where the organization really gets to stand out. And then the descriptive should be in that same tonal those same types of words should be used in the descriptive 48 sentences describing what does it look like if the company was to live it and hold themselves accountable to that standard at every turn of, of the business. And last but not least is I call it core value policy and procedure. And this is just like any other service level agreement, policy and procedure, all those types of things. But again, it's in the language of the organization. So at my business, we had rock solid policy and procedure. We had inspiring leadership policy and procedure. And it was in the language of the organization. It said, what does it mean to be an inspiring leader? What does it mean right. to give rock solid service? We had a rock solid service communication policy and procedure. So right. each step of the way, you would know, oh, that's what it means to, to give rock solid service. And when people start to get those assets in the organization, you have now given the team tools to hold each other accountable, where it's not Chris or the manager telling them what to do. It's the core values telling them what to do. Right. And if they don't do it, they know they're breaking the core value. It's just simple as that. And right. they can either decide to stay or leave and, or you can decide for them to stay or leave, but that's where the rubber meets the road. And it's where you start to see the supercharging of behavior because the language controls the behavior. Well, yeah. And, and I, I remember just reading, I haven't, I haven't read your book yet. I will, but I, I also invisible manager, the idea of an invisible manager that you have throughout the entire business. Yeah. So it goes back to that invisible scale. So the invisible manager is the person that holds people accountable through the invisible scale, which is if I've defined the value, if I define what it looks like, if I have PMP that supports it, that's the invisible manager. If there's accountability around the values, people know what they're supposed to do. Knowing and doing might be two different things and that's their choice. Yeah. But as long as I have the, the metrics around performance next to that, and I manage people to those expectations, they can't say they didn't know. Right. And the minute they say they didn't know, they're out. So in my business, we called it GSD, get shit done. Mm-hmm. And we we're all about GSD. And the, and the GSD leveled up to the core values. It was do it in the way of the core values or get out of here. Right. And we were, just, we were just kind of hardcore about it. Right. And it was funny. People just started self-selecting out of the organization. It happened, you know, when people didn't fit in, they, we knew it quickly. Right. And we were very, you know, and it's because you don't know, you're not, no one gets hiring perfect. I don't care. I'm really good at hiring and I get it wrong half the time. Sure. And, and, but when I get it right, oh boy, do I get it right. Yeah. And that's just, that's exponential. That's the 80 20 rule, right? Where 80% of your work comes from your top 20%. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. so you get a lot more of those 20, that 80 20 becomes more like 80 80, you know, when, when you're building a really badass company. Yeah. 80% of your company is giving you 80% of the, of the output. But they're all, I mean, they're just all crushing it together. 
Yeah. And then you get a lot of transparency and, and it just starts to build a trusting culture. So there's all these cool side effects of it, but the invisible manager is really, I don't need to tell you to give rock. If you don't give amazing service to my business, you are breaking rock solid service. Right. Yeah. And I, I trained you on what it is. You see, we hold each other accountable to it. Everyone knows it. So yeah. you don't do it. You chose not to do it. That's your choice. Yeah. You can't be here. And it impacts everyone, right? That's the other thing. Hey, what are the impacts if we don't give rock solid service? It yeah. impacts all of the team, right? That's that's another piece that really matters, I'm sure. Yeah. So we would pay bonuses based off NPS. So mm-hmm. our net promoter score dropped. You guys know why it dropped. It was your behavior. Right. So right. You don't get bonused. Oh, that's not, I don't give a shit. It's your, that's your problem. Like, you know what the expectation is. Like, go make it happen. Right. So, yeah, the, a lot of it, look, man, it's tough to, it's, it sucks for some people to have boundaries and give up to have it and to manage accountability. But my yeah. belief is, is, is it's a hell of a lot easier than managing when you don't have it. You just got to like get really disciplined about doing it. And the values give you a language in my business. I don't know if we used to do uh we took this out of uh, EOS level 10. So we'd level 10 meetings, right? Every single I item, ident- which is identifying your issues, every single core value or every single rock for every quarter, every I for every week, every issue we had every week, it was attached to a core value with accountability next to it. What are, we would not work on something if it was not putting a core value, uh, if it did not promote a core value in the company. Period. P- no, period. This just wouldn't happen. There's no reason to work on it because right. we're that clear on what our values are. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, that's. Exciting stuff, really, really exciting stuff. And and I see you're I see you're up to a bunch of a bunch of more more stuff. But but one question that I have is is that a lot of our leaders are looking for big futures. And so one question I love to ask is what habits or skill sets would they want to steal from you? Um, I think figure out your core values. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I like uh, Gallup Strength Finder. I, I love that tool. I think t- learning a meditation practice is really important because it teaches focus and it teaches awareness. Um, and I like the waking up app. I think that those three are, are, are really important. It, 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 like uh, there's a thing that, that I was taught through one of my um, forum mates called, he calls it meds, which stands for meditation, exercise, diet, and sleep. And so I, I make sure that I have to crush it on at least three of those per day. I try to hit all four. I try to meditate. I try to exercise. I try to diet, have a good diet, and I try to sleep. And what I say is I created this thing called the fulfillment formula, which is your core values plus your strengths. Living in your core values and working in your strengths divided by your awareness equals fulfillment. So if you are hundred percent have 100% awareness, living in your values and working in your strengths, that you will have, you will, you'll go out there and you'll crush it. So right. for me, it's taken a long time to, to, to be able to do those things. But I think that there's tools out there for it. My book's a really good one for getting clear on your values. You can use it as an individual. Um, companies, great too. Right. But I mean, I have my own personal core values. My personal core values, I call them heart, which is happiness. Besos, which is love. Eye of the tiger, which is passion. Cinco, which is curiosity. Uh, boom, and cre- which is creativity. And uh, movie night, which is balance. So I live in my values every day. I'm clear on them. If I'm, if I'm not feeling good, it's because I'm living out of alignment with one of my values and or my strengths and, or I'm have some awareness issue. So those are the things that I say, you have control of your, your meditation, you have control of your exercise, diet and sleep, and you have control over making sure the things you're doing are working in your strengths and working in your values. Those are the things I control the world around me. I don't control but those things I do control for sure. For sure. And those structures 
you know, there's a lot of structure there, but it's really simple, like simple structures that, but they, they, they support you, right. They support you and give you a lot of freedom. Oh, okay. Hey, here's what I got to do. I just got to go back to these. And certainly again, I, I, I totally agree with those, you know, those, those meditation exercise. What was the third one? Yeah. Meds, meditation, exercise, diet, sleep, diet, sleep. Absolutely. Four really, really key things that support a, a great life. Right. So yeah, if you're off on any of those, like if you, if any of those are off, I can tell you, like like start there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. like fix fix that first, and then you mm-hmm. can go start working on strengths and core values. But fix those first, and then and whatever I'm off, one of those is for sure off. Yeah. So one one question I had is Jay mentioned that you'd done like sixty plus live interviews in the last two to three months promoting your book, uh, New York Times bestseller. What have you discovered about yourself? I love talking about my book. <laughs> yeah, no, I, could, I, lo- I, lo- I, lo- I love this stuff. I, I have a live stream show called The Greatness Machine. Um, so I, I do that. I did 90 hours of that. And then I did a bunch of other people's shows. Now nah, I like this stuff. I like promoting it. I'm passionate about it. Mm-hmm. What I've discovered is if you're passionate about something, it gives you, it gives you exponential energy, energy around it. Yeah. I have one last question, but before that, anything you'd like to shout out, anything that you'd like to, uh, you know, share with our leaders? Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my website's a really good place to find. It's my hub. It's the real Darius.com. So the real Darius D A R I U S. So go to the real Darius.com in there. You can find my live stream. That's like, I'm turning that into a podcast with Jay. Um, and you can buy the book. Those are, those are some starting points. I'm doing some really cool stuff around, I'm building a mastermind right now called the Greatness Collaborative, where I'm t- picking 12 high-growth entrepreneurs and working with them for at least one year. Awesome. That starts in January. So people like I have people kind of beating down my door to, to be a part of that. But I have I've gotten six people so far that are like in, and I'm gonna probably add six more. Fantastic. Uh, so that starts in January. That's gonna be badass. You get to work with me directly and and it's gonna be a monthly forum that we're meeting. And so that I got that. I got a course coming out. But yeah, the real Darius.com is where you find everything. Fantastic. And so when you think of a leader of tomorrow, what comes to mind, Darius? I say that the leaders of tomorrow will be core value driven and core purpose driven organizations without question that they will be kicking that ass out of everyone else. Like, like that's the, the leader of tomorrow. It puts, puts others before themselves. They, they believe in stakeholder value and they believe in li- living a core value and core purpose driven life and organization. Well, I can, you, you've really, really, I, I love what, what, uh, Cameron had to say, uh, you know, about really decoding and, and, and making this so much more real and tangible, um, you know, and, and the way you speak about your values, actually a, a, another alumni of mine, Govan Yayaraman, he sort of, he must've been taking a bunch of your stuff because it just seems like he had it the same way that you were discussing it really, really nailed down next level from what we're doing. Really excited to see what our organization can operate at when we're, uh, we're, we're, we're closer to what you're doing. So congratulations, Darius, for all your hard work. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. And, and also for your sharing, right? Like, you know, so it's when someone goes and discovers something like this, like the reality is, is that Darius, it, you know, this isn't about money because, you know, like this isn't going to make what the other things you've done made, but it really is powerful. And uh, again, just from one of the people who are going to go take a bunch of value. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Thank you for having me. Hey, you betcha. Okay. Be well. Take care. All right. See you guys. Hey leaders, I hope you enjoyed this episode. By now, 
you are aware that we work with ambitious students every single year to not only help them run their first successful business, but to further their development as a leader and give them an unfair advantage in the future over their counterparts. It's why starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down their path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. And I can't wait to see you on the other side.